The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. R. Scott Clark. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are glad to be before your face and with our brothers and sisters, to be able to rejoice in your goodness and mercy and kindness to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We are so uh, glad that you have gathered us as your sheep. You've made us who were by nature aliens and strangers to be sons of God in Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son, our elder brother. Hear our prayer Bless our devotions on your and in your word. Strengthen us, renew us, and as always, forgive us our sins for Jesus' sake. Work in us powerfully by your Holy Spirit, putting to death in us day by day the old man and making alive the new. For his sake, amen. You may be seated. So um, the passage this morning on which we're devoting is Deuteronomy 6. Yeah, 4 through 9, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, it's a very familiar passage, and I'm just going to, to make two brief points, but I hope they'll be edifying. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, reading from the English Standard Version, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These are the words that I command you. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. As far as the reading of God's word, you know this imperative that appears in verse 4 here. Listen, pay attention, O Israel. As God speaks uh, in his covenant name to his people 40 years after the Exodus. And this is, as you, as you know, the most fundamental confession in all of Scripture. Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel. Yahweh our God. Yahweh is one. There are some difficulties in translating this, the, the Hebrew is, is, um, is not entirely clear, but, but that's the usual translation, and we'll go with that. It, um, it's so fundamental that it uh, reappears in the New Testament. Our Lord Jesus quotes the Shema. So we see there the fundamental unity of the covenant of grace between the old administrations and the new. The same God who made us this is the same God who redeemed us out of Egypt is the same God who entered into covenant uh, with Israel is the same God who became incarnate in Jesus Christ our Lord. So the Gnostics are wrong, the radical dualists are wrong, the Marcionites are wrong, and all uh, the Albigensians, the radical Anabaptists, and all those through the whole history of the church who've tried to set radically against everything, uh, set the old against the new in a fundamental way, as if everything that happened before the incarnation is of no truth or relevance to us. This is God's 
truth for us. Our Lord Jesus not only quoted it, but Paul alludes to it and James alludes to it as well when he says, you say you believe in God. And when he says you, or you say that God is one. And when he, when he says that, he's alluding to the fact that when they gathered, they recited the Shema. Shema Israel, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. You can take God's name on your lips and you can say that sacred, ancient, fundamental creed. He's complaining, but I don't see the evidence of any actual belief in your life. Oh, well, we may come back to that. The fun, most fundamental thing that the Shema said to Israel and says to us, says to, says to all believers in all times and in all places, is that the God who is, is one. You might think, well, duh, everybody knows that. All reasonable people are monotheists. And then I say to you, well, well there are a lot of reasonable people who are no longer monotheists and who weren't monotheists when this was articulated. I'd say a fair number of, of Americans are not monotheists. And actually, the truth be told, we look inside our hearts, by nature, we are not monotheists. Any idolater is a polytheist, and we are all idolaters. So this is an important declaration that comes to us when God says, I am one. And, and that, that, that uh, adjective one is really, really important. It says a lot of things, more things than we can probably cover in the few minutes that we have. One of the things that is signaled, one of the truths, the realities that is signaled in that declaration is there are any other gods like me. I am unique. I'm not like the Egyptian gods. Every, and you can talk to Dr. Bani or Dr. Dr. Estelle and find out a lot more about Egyptian religion than you can learn from me. But I do know that it was very complicated and it developed over a long period of time. And that there were local deities, there were national deities, there were deities for the sky and deities for the water and deities for this and deities for that. And Yahweh says, I'm not like those gods. I, I actually exist. All the rest of those gods are just figments of people's imaginations. They're idols of the heart, idols of the mind, idols of the intellect, idols of the hand, but they're idols. They are gods that are not gods. So Yahweh is one among the Egyptian gods. Yahweh is one in himself. He is one. And and again, we, we could meditate on that for a long time. That might seem like a simple declaration, and, and I don't mean any pun there, uh, but it, it's a profound thing to say. Because Yahweh is the only entity, if you'll allow me to use that word for a moment, who is one in himself. Everything else is complex. You and I are body and soul. You and I are becoming. There was when you and I were not. In 1960, I was not. In 1961, I was. And if I look at the right internet app, uh, it will tell me when, again, I will not be. (laughs) I try to avoid those sites. But God just is. Just think about that. He is. I, I... I feel like I'm going back in some ways. I was never in Professor Ventil's classroom, but 
over the years, it almost feels like I was just because of the reading and the hearing. And, I can, and I've seen the pictures and I can see the, 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 the chalkboard with the two circles, God and man, right? Not intersecting, two discrete circles. And one of the things that Professor Ventil was always trying to communicate to us is that we are not God, which is a huge fundamental thing to get. It's a basic thing to get. In the beginning, God was. You just pay attention to the, the Genesis narrative. The picture that's being uh, evoked for us, or the image that's being evoked for us, is that there is a point. And that, now we're not talking about time now, just a point. And again, this is why this is difficult when we talk about God. We're, we're not talking about time, but there's a point at which there is God and nothing. And he was perfectly content and satisfied in himself. He didn't make us because he needed us. He made us because it pleased him to make us. There was God and nothing. God just is. He, in other words, he was before there was anything else. He is while there are other things. And if he wanted to, he could make it so that there was just God and nothing else again. That's our sovereign God. He just is. He isn't becoming. He isn't changing. He isn't anything other than he has ever been. My sister sent me some photographs, family photographs from the early 60s when we were all gathered together in a family gathering in Kansas from both sides of the family. And it was, it's really striking how many of those people are no longer here. They're gone. And it's really striking, that little tyke holding a, very gleefully holding a, a football helmet. I trust it was a Nebraska football helmet. He's now a, getting to be an older guy with no hair and a white beard. I'm not what I was. You're not what you were. You are becoming. God just is. When he said to Israel, Shema Israel, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad, Hero Israel, Yahweh your God, Yahweh is one. He says, I am. I just am. I am what I am. As you know from Exodus. He's one in himself. He... Uh, is such that he's immutable, for example. He doesn't change. He's impassable. There are two great articles, in, in my view, that defeat open theism and, and all the variants, whether we, put the, whether we use covenant as a lever to, to teach a variant of open theism or whatever folks want to do. There are two great articles, I think, that address this, uh, one of which is Richard Muller's article from 1983, uh, explaining classical theism, what it was and what, what it wasn't. One of the other fundamental articles, I think, is by our own Dr. Horton, in which he appealed to the biblical and Christian doctrine of the simplicity of God. Believers in what's known as classical theism have sometimes been accused of believing in a, a static God, a God influenced or a theology influenced by uh, some, some Greek ideas. They're always very vague about what those Greek ideas are where they come from and exactly how they influence allegedly Christian theism. But one of the wonderful things that Dr. Horton showed in that article is that, in fact, it is the Christian doctrine of God, the biblical doctrine of God, which is not Greek. And, it's, and any doctrine of God that posits that there are things that God cannot know, that's the pagan doctrine of God. And the bedrock of our doctrine of God, or one of them, is the simplicity of God. He is one. 
He, there are no parts to God. We have parts. Psychologically, physically, we have parts. God just is one God. He is what he is all the time in himself. You say, well, that, that's all very interesting. Seems sort of dry and theoretical. But what if I say he is what he is for you in Christ? You ever, ever had somebody disappoint you? You put your trust in them. You thought, I know this person. I trust them implicitly. And then they let you down. If that hasn't happened for you, as soon as you get out of diapers, it will. If it hasn't happened to you, then you've had a blessed life indeed. And that's because people are not one. People are divided. They're divided against themselves. They're divided against you. They're divided against God. God is not that way. He just is one for us in Christ. That's what it means to say he's our covenant God. That's why he, he identifies himself here as Yahweh. Shema Israel, Yahweh Eloheinu. Yahweh Echad. He's our covenant God. He's made a promise to us. We can rely on his promise to us because he is one. He doesn't change his mind. Having made that promise, he is utterly reliable. How do we know he's reliable? Well, there's the whole history of redemption, but I point you to the cross outside the city on which our Savior, his Son, was hung for us. For God so loved the world. For Yahweh Eloheinu so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That's how one he is for us. I made a promise, he says. I kept my promise. I gave you my son. And he is one in three persons, just to make that clear. He's not one person, he's three persons. But our Lord Jesus says, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's a great mystery in the unity of God, but he's fundamentally one. In three persons, not one person. Second thing, quickly. I told you time would get away. He is one to us in his word. You say, I, where do I know this God? How do I know this God? How do I know what this God wants of me? He's revealed himself in one place. Well, nature, yes, his law. But fundamentally, in his word. Which makes what we do here so terribly important. Because some, most of you, are preparing to be servants of the word of God. And the place where he mediates himself savingly to everyone and anyone whom he will save is in his holy, inspired, and errant, infallible word. And that's why he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, with all your faculties, and these words. God, just as God has loved us with all of his faculties, we are to respond in grace with all of our faculties. And how, where, how do we do that? And where is that love expressed? How is it expressed? Where do we find it and how do we respond we find it in the word and we respond with the word. What I want to say here in conclusion is that God comes to us in his word. 
You say, I don't know what to do. I say, read his word. Well, it doesn't tell me. Well, then maybe you're asking the wrong question. I don't know what to do. Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, and after that, do what you will. No. Yes. If you're loving the Lord your God with all your faculties and your neighbor as yourself, you're free to do within those parameters what you will. God morally, I think, doesn't care whether you buy a red car or a blue car. He cares that you don't steal the car. There's wisdom, and wisdom is deeply involved with the application of the word of God with the help of the Holy Spirit. How do you know the word, and how do you know the God who reveals himself in the word? You know it when you're teaching it to your children, when you're sitting in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign in your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. When the word of God is constantly with you. When this word was given, it was an oral word. Nobody else, very few people, had access to the written word. It was an oral word. It was a heard word, which, which should be an, a, great, a great encouragement to you. Because God has promised to use, to use the oral expression of his word, chiefly the proclamation of his law and his gospel. And it's on that that God's people meditate and that they use. Not saying they shouldn't read, but until about 100 years ago, most people didn't have easy access to the written word, and many people couldn't read. It's, it, it's only been very recently that it's been, for many of us, a written word. For most of us, most of the time, it's been a spoken word. And that's a powerful reality that, and truth in which you should take comfort. We should all take comfort. God has promised to use his spoken word to accomplish his purposes. That all these people would know the one God and know that he loves them in Christ with all of his faculties. And by his spirit, he's enabling us to respond to him with all of our faculties. Well, let's pray and give thanks. Father, we're grateful today for your word that you have made yourself known, that you are not utterly hidden, that you have accommodated yourself to us in your word, that you are one and that you are one for us and to us, and you are one for us and to us in your word. Lord, give us confidence to read that word, to preach that word, to teach that word, and to know that you will be faithful to your covenant promise, to be a God to us and to our children, and to all those who are far off whom you are calling through the word by your powerful Holy Spirit. Oh Lord, use that word to accomplish your great purposes, to build your church, and thereby to glorify your name in your Son. Amen. Copyright 2015, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.